This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. You're listening to Bookmark with me, Umar Pagadampake Pagan. Joining me today is American comic book writer and editor Paul Levitt. He was president of DC Comics from 2002 to 2009 and has worked with the company in a variety of roles for well over 35 years. I'm Paul Levitt. Um, I'm a comic book writer, educator these days. Uh, I teach college courses on writing about comics, about publishing, and in my past life, I ran the business side of DC Comics for several decades, finishing up as president and publisher about five years ago. Right off the bat, tell me about your first encounter with the art form. Who, who bought you your first comic? What was it? When I was growing up in Brooklyn, the normal thing was for kids to have a carton of comics sitting in their garage or their basement maybe in their room. Uh, So the first comics I saw were the boxes of comics that older kids on the block had. Boys who were three, four, five years older than I was who had accumulated them. The comics that were popular in America when I was a child were either the Disney comics, which didn't do very much for me for whatever set of reasons, or the DC superhero comics. Marvel was just starting and was barely distributed, so there hadn't been too many Marvel comics in those boxes, so I first fell in love with Superman and Batman, Justice League. And at which point did you know that this was something you wanted to do with your life? See, I think I was doing it before I knew I wanted to do it for my life. Uh, When I was nine, I read the letter column of Legion of Superheroes, which was my favorite comic. Sorry for the background noise. It's New York City. (laughs) Um, And the letter column talked about Jim Shooter, who was age 13, having written the story that was in the issue they were talking about. 13? I'll be 13 someday. That was a believable aspiration. So maybe I can do some of this along the way. I didn't think I would have a career in comics or spend my life in comics. As I got older, started doing fan magazines about the field when I was 14, got to know most of the people in the business. They they weren't very optimistic about the business. American comics field in the early 70s thought it was going to be dead in a decade or so and was on a path that would have been. I figured I'd get a real job. was would go to college with that aim. But uh, I had the opportunity to start working my way through college, doing a couple of days worth of work at D.C. So I started doing that, figured, okay, this is cool. I'll get my taste of comics, and then I can do real work. Turned out comics started to get to be a little healthier business. And uh, I said, ah, the heck with it. Let me give it a try. Dropped out and went to work full time at it. And and how did you get started at DC? I mean, did you have a mentor who brought you in? Well, I was doing the fanzine, so I knew pretty much everybody, at, certainly on the creative side of the company. Was walking past Joe Orlando's office one afternoon after school, gathering information for my little fanzine. 
he said, hey, come in here. Joe never remembered anyone's name. I'm sure he didn't remember mine at that moment. Uh, he said, I need somebody to write my letter columns. Will you do that? I said, uh, I'm not a writer, Joe. He said, I read your fanzine. You write well enough to write a letter column. So at 16, I was suddenly a freelance writer for DC Comics. And uh, Joe was certainly my first great mentor in the field. The following summer, his assistant editor was going to take the summer off on vacation. He asked me if I would fill in. I was thrilled to. His assistant never came back, and I never left. So at the time, I mean, you're 16 years old now. You're, you're writing a letter column, and I guess you're growing up surrounded by all of these people, all of these, um, I guess it was Silver Age coming on Bronze Age um, writers and artists. And that must have been something. I mean, you must have been surrounded by some of comic books' greatest influences. Howie Chaikin, who's a couple of years older than I am but came in at about the same time, likes to joke that we came in at the end of the beginning. We really got to meet the vast majority of people who created the great characters and who really created the business. Um, it, it was cool at the time. I didn't really understand how cool it was because I was a kid and I didn't have a great historical perspective. But looking back on it, it's totally amazing. I was talking with one of my friends at San Diego Con last year about our growing up experience in the field. And I started to count on my fingers and realized that when I was a kid hanging around DC and learning from all these people, there were nine people who would end up in the Will Eisner Hall of Fame for comics running around an office of 30 people. The concentration of talent was just astounding. So, Paul, you've been with DC now for more than 35 years. You were its president and publisher for about eight years, which gives you this pretty unique perspective on the industry. Did you, did you ever imagine the comic book superhero would be as mainstream as it is today? No. Um, I did not imagine geek culture would win this way. When I went to my first comic convention here in New York in 71, we had 3,500 people there. It was the largest comic convention that had ever been held, and nobody thought we could have a larger one. There's never been a better time to be a geek. I mean, SDCC is insane. It's being followed by the New York Times, let alone comic book fanzines. It's being followed by Wall Street. I mean, I have, uh, obviously, I have some Time Warner stock from my executive days, so I follow media alerts on the stock. And one of the stock analysts announced Time Warner Strong coming off Comic-Con. <laughs> what the hell? Fantastic. So what is your take on the industry at the moment? Are we living in the new golden age? Because that's what everyone seems to think for both fans and creators. I think for American comics, we're living in an unequaled golden age of creativity. The diversity of what's being published today current material, the availability of historically great comics, international material, is far beyond what we've, we've ever had in this country, which is truly wonderful. Um, where there was a line that a writer named Adam Gropnik wrote in The New Yorker a handful of years ago, writing about, in an article about Philip Roth, not about comics, but about writing in general, he said, we're in a golden age of writers, but not a golden age for writers. 
and I think that's true for the comics world as well. It's a golden age to, of reading comics. It's not quite a golden age for creating them. Some people are making far more money than they ever have and having wonderful creative freedom. There's an awful lot of people who are still having a very challenging time eating while they're doing their comics. And why do you suppose that is? The good news is it's very easy to get things published today between ebooks and self-publishing, changes in printing technology that allow very short print runs. It's very hard to make enough money to pay for the time and the labor that you put into doing a comic if you're only going to sell a couple of thousand copies, much less if you're only going to sell a couple of hundred copies. Um, you know, the, the economics of the field is really designed in all of publishing for mass distribution and mass marketing. If you can't sell significant numbers of your writing, of your comics, your creativity, whatever it is, you have to do it as a hobby. And comics is a very time-consuming and draining hobby. I'm speaking today to Paul Levitz, one of my comic book heroes. After this, we'll be talking about the global reach of the American comic book. You're listening to Bookmark on BFM 89.9. I'm Omar Pagan, I'm Pagan, and this is Bookmark. I'm speaking today to comic book writer Paul Levitz about his life, his work, and the evolution of the superhero comic. So two years ago, you wrote this absolute beast of a book, uh, 75 years of DC Comics, Art of Modern Myth-Making, 720 pages, it's like 16 pounds. Uh, and this myth-making, this idea of shaping and directing youth culture, it, it goes beyond just an American endeavor these days. It's more of a global one. I mean, you're touching people all over the world. American culture has been the most exportable culture, I guess I'd argue, of the last 40 or 50 years. Um, Japanese manga has caught up an anime a little bit in uh, the last decade or two. Uh, the Brits were doing okay with their film industry for a while, and Music is kind of a very separate industry where certainly the British did phenomenally at exporting their culture for a very long time and that, and Scandinavians have done some interesting work. But if you kind of measure by the ton, American culture has by far been the most exportable. We'll see how much longer that continues, but that's really the true American empire, I think. In recent years, has it actually affected... Has, has global culture affected your process in writing and creating comics? I mean, we see it with the diversity of cultures now in superhero comics. We see a Muslim Ms. Marvel. Um, your new Doctor Fate as well is, is more of a global character in many ways. Well, there's two things at play there, I think. Maybe three. One, Americans have historically been a very parochial society not particularly interested in what was going on beyond the, the moats that we perceived surrounding our country. That's shifted in many ways in the last 15 years, partly off the events of 9-11, but partly off the interconnections of the world. Second, specifically for comics, 
we always had a reader or two in Kuala Lumpur, but we weren't in touch with them. We didn't really have a great deal of consciousness that they existed, and we had no real contact with creative people in other parts of the world. The internet has changed all of that and made those connections accessible and comfortable. And that's brought a whole new raft of wonderful creative people into the field. So, for instance, on Dr. Fate, I have the joy of working with Sunny Liu, who's your neighbor in Singapore, Malaysian-born. Sunny did a little bit of work for DC about a decade ago, but 20 years ago, he couldn't possibly have worked for the company. And even a decade ago, it was very difficult. Now the pages come in digitally. I got four inked pages from Sunny this morning. It's as instantaneous getting pages from Singapore as it is getting it from next door. might be easier than getting it from next door in some ways. Um, So the diversity of talent opens things up. The third really interesting thing, and this really bears on what I'm doing, I think, in Dr. Fate, American comics in their first decades, for a variety of reasons, couldn't address ethnicity, religion, sexuality, most things that race, most things that make life complicated for human beings. That's begun to change in the last decade or more at a fairly accelerated pace. So when I had the opportunity to do a new Dr. Fate series, part of the underpinnings was to say, well, the mythology of this character is fundamentally Egyptian. How do I do more of that? How do I address more of that? How do I bring Egyptian mythology into it? Can I bring a kid into it who is Egyptian-American? What does that mean? What does that complicate in his life? What are the dilemmas that brings to us? And how do I get story material out of it? And that's so much fun. That's so much richer than what we were able to do decades ago. And you've taken, I mean, at least for my generation of kids growing up through the 80s and uh, primarily coming of age in the 90s, Dr. Fate was was always a secondary character. A lot of us came to him through the DC animated stuff and it brings Dr. Fate into a whole new audience. It it, it makes Dr. Fate an A-lister. Thank you. I hope so. Um, I think mostly what it makes him is an individual. You know, when you think back to whether it's the animated series or Dr. Fate in the Justice Society, whether it was in my stories or any of the other writers, going back to Gardner Fox, who was his original creator, a lot of what kept him from being an A-lister was he wasn't individual. Most of what was true about Dr. Fate was either true about other superheroes or was true about other, at least, magical superheroes. I hope that what I'm doing is I'm giving him an individual world to exist in where he has singular importance and singular characteristics. Comics are so greatly influenced by these other media threads, television, film, the digital form, all of this. And it must be completely different from when, you know, your biggest worry was getting books on shelves and getting them out the comic store door. Well, that's the good news, bad news joke about the geeks winning, isn't it? You know, the good news is the things that we love now pervade all the media. The bad news is we now have to share them with everybody. 
And the bad news is that we don't have our little world to ourselves with our safe little walls around it. Overall, I'd rather the whole world enjoy our material and share it. Um, it has its challenges. What direction do you think the industry is going in that sense? I mean, I think both DC, Marvel, Valiant, Image have done well to embrace new technologies and new forms better than most other popular culture industries, better than the music industry for sure, uh, better even than the movie and television industry when it comes to the digital forms. Well, comics had more to win. You know, compared to movies, television, or music, those were enormous industries with total penetration of the mass market. Comics, by the 1980s, 1990s, were appealing to a fairly small segment of the population. So all these new technologies opened the door to our reaching out to more people, doing more kinds of stories. So hopefully we've done some good work in it. I, I don't think that work is nearly done. What's wonderful that's going on in American comics is the range of the material being created. And I love superheroes. That's, that's my favorite flavor. You know, I probably will go to my, go to my grave with that being my favorite flavor. But you look and you see a Raina Telemager come out with books like Smile and Drama and Sisters and start reaching probably a million young girls who had almost no comics being created for them or none that they chose to read. And Raina's stuff somehow broke that barrier and said, hey, kids, come on in. Try some comics. You'll love it. I don't know what they're going to read next after that, but I know they're going to read something next, and I know they're going to create next things after that. And that's a fabulous thing that's going on, and we're seeing that in a number of different directions, and I think we're still at the beginning of that process here in America. And I just wanted to ask you uh, this core question, I guess, on superheroes, which is they, how difficult is it to keep them true to these guiding principles, no matter how much they change with every generation because every fan base in every era almost determines what their superhero should be. Well, the core principles, I think, stay the same. Um, I got in this discussion some years ago with a group of Arab editorial cartoonists who were visiting DC Comics and Mad Magazine uh, as part of a tour in the U.S. And they said, so superheroes... Are they just about the American idea that might makes right? And I said, well, I, I can see where you would see that in them, but I don't think that's what they're about. I think they're about the American idea that we all have gifts, and it's what you do with your gifts that determines who you are in life and what you do. I think the superhero is fundamentally about what it's like to be a gifted person, and what you choose to do with those gifts. And will Bill Gates be remembered more for the first half of his career when he made billions of dollars? And he was brilliant, and he saw a little bit of the future of our having a computer on every desk and in every home. Or will he be remembered more for the second half of his career where he took I think the, the article I was reading the other day said he's so far given away $47 billion and he's eradicated or nearly eradicated a couple of diseases 
and he's saved through his foundation with others and many, many others, you know, hundreds of thousands of lives, changed child mortality in countries. I think being a superhero is about that second half of your life. It's about how you change the world. And yeah, it's hard keeping up with the future. It's changing really fast. I think it's harder to write science fiction today, fantasy, than it ever was. But the fundamental challenge of being a hero is still being a hero, standing up and using what you can do to make the world a better place. That was Paul Levitt. You can find his work across almost four decades of comic books. Go check out the collected editions of his run on Dr. Fate, illustrated by the Eisner Award-winning Sonny Liu. I highly recommend it. You've been listening to Bookmark on BFM 89.9. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, The Business Station.